Well, five weeks have gone by, so it must be time for another Dashing MD podcast. That's right. Coming to you once again from the East Coast of America and the front lines of healthcare and healthcare research, I am the Dashing Doctor here with the Dashing MD podcast, streaming at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd. The blog is dashingmd at blogspot.com and email, always welcome, is dashingmd at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook, Dashing Doctor, that's D-O-C-T-E-U-R, for a little French flavor. And i uh, love to uh, add friends there. I've had a couple in the past few weeks. And uh, here I am now with episode 27, episode 27, Whither and Whence. Well, folks, here on the East Coast of America, it has uh, been a, quite a day, actually. You may hear in the background the odd roll of thunder. I can finally sit down and do this podcast because I'm not quaking in the basement um, for fear that the house is going to burn down from the many lightning strikes that it was suffering earlier in the day. Uh, I live in a big house with a, a very high roof, just under which lives me and a couple very excited cats uh, when the storm rolled in today. I haven't seen a downpour like that in quite a while. Uh, sheets of water are just pouring off of everything. The first floor of the house flooded. Um, one of the windows wasn't draining well and it filled with water and then filled much of the living room with water all in about five minutes. It was, uh, it was something to see. It reminded me of my days back in the Midwest when you would see these storms just come rolling in off the plains and they would just smack right into you and it was, it was pretty awesome. I lived in Chicago for a while and, and on the 37th floor of a building looking out towards downtown Chicago and you could just watch the storms just roll in and lightning come down and hit the top of the Sears Tower every few seconds for hours on end sometimes. Those were the days. This was a little less dramatic than all that, but still, it was the biggest storm uh, we've had since I've been back here on the East Coast, and uh, it was quite a thing to see. Always nice to be reminded of kind of where you sit in the general hierarchy of things. Another thing that's done that for me recently is that I've been reading a, what a, a really great book by this guy Brian Green called The Fabric of the Cosmos, a book that sort of puts physics in the mind of the learned layman and describes just how utterly bizarre and fantastic and extraordinary and magic it is that anything that happens in this universe happens. Uh, Every time I've seen something fall from high to low uh, by the force of gravity or turned on a light since I've started reading this book, I've just been stunned at the magic of the world that we live in. So uh, if you're looking for something for the summer, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it uh, puts, puts things in perspective in a big way. And I have to say, at this point, uh, perspective for me is something that's very much needed. Those of you who are friends of mine on Facebook probably noticed uh, that on over the July 4th weekend, uh, I changed my status to say that uh, my plan was to get the episode out on July 4th. That definitely was a plan. It was a plan that was stymied by... Uh, a variety of things, but but chief among them the fact that my housing situation has kind of uh, fallen apart or fallen through or really just kind of come to its natural conclusion. Many of you know that I've was uh, been living uh, been living with friends um, or with a friend's family and uh, living with them, and it's been awesome um, and an unbelievable uh, deal for me. I, I've basically lived in their place for free, um, just doing some odd jobs around the house and keeping an eye on it when people are out of town, and and it's been great. But 
I now have these two cats. It makes me feel very parental. And uh, someone uh, in the family is moving back up to the house and uh, doesn't like having the cats around and, and feels that they provide excessive allergen exposure. So I sort of was given the choice of uh, whether or not I wanted to stay here um, and move the cats or whether I myself wanted to move uh, and take the cats with me. And what struck me about that decision was that uh, it wasn't a difficult decision at all. Um, I guess maybe I'm 31 and and I've got a biological clock in me uh, despite my maleness and surgeonhood, but I feel very parental towards these little guys. And uh, it seemed like, you know, we are a little family and if one of us had to move, then all of us would move. And I have no regrets about that. Um, but it has sort of thrown a little wrench in the works of how I'm going to kind of keep my head above water financially. Um, cause now I'm going to have to actually like pay rent on stuff and where I live, that's expensive. I don't know. Certain luxuries may have to go by the board. I may have to have a tough discussion with my personal trainer. So it goes, but it's been a real nice reminder to me of, of, what my priorities are not just because i sort of was able to say oh you know these cats are important to me enough that i would be willing to pay rent to live with them but because i realized how important it is to me to be in enough control of my life at the age of 31 having completed you know a college and graduate education to be in a place where i can say if i want cats in my life i can like have a cat you know, I, if I want to have some reasonable standard of living, like a place where I can have a pet, then I, that's something I should be able to have for myself. And there's a fair amount of soul searching that comes with the realization that like, that's not something I can automatically have um, easily, uh, despite everything I've done up to this point, everything I've worked for and and. And it's not something that I'm going to be able to feel secure about, you know, for potentially like years to come. I may find it a financial strain to have a pet. Never mind like a wife and kids and a mortgage. Like, you know, I don't even think I could like add a plant to my current situation without sort of pushing me over the edge. Like I actually am really benefiting from the fact that these guys like seek out their own food and water. And I'm not even in a clinical rotation. Like, I'm not, my life is not that crazy. So that sort of spun me into this crazy spiral of, like, should I be an investment banker or management consultant? A spiral that I get into now and then. Towards the end of June, I went down to New York and met with uh, a bunch of uh, old friends who are all on the board of the, the newspaper at my college, which is an independent corporation. And I was on that board for a while uh, until I started residency and, and couldn't keep up with it. Um, but those guys have obviously kept the, the ship afloat. And I went down to sort of just catch up with them, talk about some capital campaign issues. And it was, uh, it was striking. I was in a room full of people who work for New York financial firms, people who, you know, at the age of 25 are buying houses in Manhattan people who, you know, have wives and families and security um, and a real career trajectory along which they've actually come some distance at the age of 30-something. 
and I thought to myself, well, what do I have? You know, like what if I, what do I have now that, that I could actually walk away with? You know, like what skill do I have that I could parlay into a job somewhere else? You know, I mean, until I'm done with residency, I can't move jobs, really. I, 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 I'm an indentured servant um, and will not be my own master for a long, long time. Um, there's no sort of quanta of experience that I develop in this process that that's readily translatable to anything else if I wanted to do anything else which led to me feeling sort of trapped, which led to me thinking about my bad experiences in residency, which led me to think that, you know, I think I've got, and I was sort of joking about this with a a friend of mine the other day until we both kind of realized we were actually not really joking, but like, I think that my first two years of residency totally gave me like a low-grade case of post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I go back and think about days in those especially towards the end of that my second year of residency and I I mean I get like goosebumps and like my heart rate goes up and I you know start feeling sort of trapped and and it's an incredibly unpleasant sensation and I guess a question then becomes you know should you do a job that gives you post-traumatic stress disorder um, and knowing that it's then done that should you I mean, is it reasonable to expect someone to, you know, medicate themselves with antidepressants through the course of their training in order to combat the bad psychological effects of their training on them? Or um, or is that just ridiculous? I was recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, asked to go speak to a bunch of high school students who were doing like a summer camp uh, in what it is to be a doctor. And they wanted people to give sort of the resident's perspective. And I really found myself confronting this duality in, in, a, in an auditorium with 416-year-olds looking at me. And, uh, and I was trying to figure out how to answer their questions about you know, what it means to be a doctor, what the best parts and what the worst parts. Mostly they just wanted to hear gory stories. And of course, those were easily provided. But um, even so, it was like a really difficult experience to stand up there and say, on the one hand, medicine gives you this unbelievable reward that that other jobs just can't give you, that you wake up in the morning and you know that by the time you get home at the end of the day, you will have uh, helped a number of people through what is likely the worst or one of the worst days of their lives, that you will have been present for real opportunities to, to help and to hurt um, that you will have had the opportunity to make choices that will have lifelong ramifications for people. And on the other hand, uh, you know, this craziness of, of working uh, as hard as we do for as little as we do. Um, you know, at one point I found myself saying, like, you know, if you don't love every second of what you're doing, if you don't wake up and think there's nothing I can think of that I would rather do, then there are a lot cheaper ways uh, that involve a lot less effort to be unhappy in your job or to be disaffected. But in the end, um, you know, standing there in front of 440 eager young future physicians, I found myself coming back to what it is that has got me into this, to talking about the future, to talking about what I anticipate my future being, which is 
being an academic surgeon uh, in pediatric surgery, taking care of uh, kids and really being able to do amazing things to, to save whole lifetimes, not just lives, but lifetimes, while working with uh, a lot of people who are really, really cool and not having to spend a huge amount of time with soul-killing general surgeons who only gripe about how much better it used to be in the good old days when they could really mistreat people. And not having to, you know, constantly feel low on the totem pole, being able to feel like I am my own person and I'm making my own choices. And I try, I sort of was able to imagine that future for them and for myself and, and came away with it thinking, I should go, you know, read up on more surgery things. I need to know more about this job I do. Not that I need to go apply immediately to McKinsey, which is nice. I, th- I still think I'm in that place where I can say, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. I can't think of something I would rather do more. Um, and as long as that's the case, that's what we're going to do. I have had uh, some opportunities come up, though, that I think should be exciting for me and hopefully will be good for you guys as well, because I know listening to me carp about my job dilemmas and my research stuff is maybe less exciting than uh, getting those good blood and gut stories and the, and the drama of actual day-to-day patient care. And that is, uh, I mean, I think I'm going to start doing some moonlighting. Uh, so moonlighting is when uh, you're brought in to just cover individual shifts in a hospital. Uh, in my case, I'd be working in a cardiothoracic ICU, just doing some overnight coverage and weekend coverage. Uh, and I think that would be a great way to sort of keep up on my skills, remind myself kind of what the patient provider experience is like because it's been now a while. And I have caught myself thinking as I walk around, wouldn't it be interesting, you know, if I was a doctor and then catching myself and scolding myself for re- forgetting the past 10 years of my life. And uh, so hopefully that'll come through. There's a big, long licensing process and various other hoops to jump through but maybe in a couple of months so two or three podcasts from now um, I'll actually be able to tell you some stories of patients again um, that are in the present tense the other thing that's kind of cool is that uh, I'm starting to do a little bit of consulting work in sort of my other area of great love which is uh, theater and film and television and 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 how we can use storytelling to teach people about medicine. There's a group uh, in LA that that has a database of people who are interested in helping uh, screenwriters and producers to create medically accurate and scientifically accurate television. And I've been doing some work uh, for them. I had a great conversation the other day with uh, some people who are putting together a pilot for HBO um, about uh, a character they have who's a doctor and they want her to take care of a patient who uh, has been injured and they wanted to talk about sort of the specifics of how that injury worked and how, you know, what the best injury would be and what the outcomes would be. And it was, it was so fun to talk uh, with some creative people who are trying to tell a story um, and yet who are very eager to do it in a medically accurate way. So I had the opportunity to really get in and talk with them about, you know, well, do you want this person to go to rehab afterwards or do you want them to have to go to the operating room or do you want to just take care of the ER and, 
you know, what's the length of the operation, what kind of surgeons do you want to have involved, and together we sort of painted this picture of, of me sort of giving them some real-life examples and then picking and choosing until we had a real patient that I could imagine, um, an amalgam of patients I've had in the past who had a variety of different problems all of which would allow them to explore the story in the way that they wanted, and they wanted to know exactly how to say it, exactly how it would work, and it was such a gratifying thing, A, to know that these people wanted to know this um, and were wanting to make their script as accurate as possible. Uh, and B, to sort of realize that I had that knowledge base, that ability to sort of take the input of like, here's what, how we want the story to go and to translate that into, you know, a real story of how things could possibly unfold with this patient um, who you may see on your television sets one of these days. Uh, if I hear more about it and I'm released from my confidentiality agreements, uh, I can tell you more. But for the moment, that's what that's what I can say, and and we'll see if it comes to anything. It's just a spec thing at the moment, so we'll see. But um, it was really fun, and hopefully, I'll have a chance to do some more of that as well. Last week, um, or last—I really shouldn't say last week, should I? Last podcast. I started a little thing. We'll see how people like it. I haven't had a lot of feedback on it, so um, you don't hate it enough to write me about it. So we'll see how uh, we'll see how you think about it. Let me know. Anyway, I'm interested in hearing what you think about uh, all these things. Uh, but we uh, last time in the last podcast, I, I introduced a case to you, which is a case of a an 80 year old woman whose right arm suddenly goes numb. She says it's sometimes feeling white. She uh, goes to the doctor. The doctor is able to feel a pulse weekly and is able to find a pulse with a, a Doppler test and tells her to, uh, to take two aspirin and come back in a month. Well, here's the story. That patient was my grandmother uh, who in February uh, noticed that she was really having trouble with her arm. Uh, that it was turning white, that she was having trouble moving her fingers. She went to her doctor. He felt for a pulse. At the time, her hand was pretty warm. This was sort of an intermittent thing. Um, he felt a little bit of a pulse. He felt a little Doppler. He sent her. He was concerned enough to send her to a vascular surgeon, but that vascular surgeon heard a signal in her artery, in her wrist. Um, her hand felt warm at the time, and she, being a child of the Depression and one of these people who believes that it's best not to rock the boat with doctors, uh, said, well, you know, I, I actually really don't think it's anything at all. She went home and woke up a couple of days later unable to move her hand, and it was white. And uh, she called her daughter, my mom, who called me and said, well, why don't you address this? And uh, so I called her and talked to her on the phone. It sounded like her hand was dead, and there was no pulse. It was white. She had no feeling. She couldn't move it. So we got her into uh, the hospital that I'm actually working at, more or less immediately. Uh, and that's one of the things that's nice about being a resident, I guess, or being a doctor at a hospital is, is it is possible to get people quickly advanced uh, through this process and get them seeing, you know, really good people very quickly in a way that I'm not sure would be possible if it weren't kind of all in the family. But the professional courtesy that, that people are willing to, to sort of go out for and they're willing to stay late or come in early or, you know, sort of bend over backwards to help one another in medicine, and it's, it's a gratifying thing. I, I wish everyone had it that easy. But my grandmother came in, did a study of her 
arm and discovered that she had no blood flow at all to her right arm. Um, that the blood vessel, the main artery, the axillary artery that fed her arm was completely blocked off, which is a rare condition. Um, and she ended up having a very urgent surgery to fix that. She'd had a lot of radiation to her shoulder uh, as part of a breast cancer treatment a long time ago when breast cancer radiation basically consisted of taping a bunch of cesium to a person's chest and stepping out of the room for a few hours, as far as I can tell. So she had a lot of radiation changes to that artery, and it was completely blocked off. They put a graft in that ran from her carotid artery down to her brachial artery. So it starts in the artery that leads from her heart up to her neck. They took a piece of vein from her leg, attached one side of that to the carotid artery, and then tunneled it underneath the skin and hooked it into her brachial artery underneath her biceps, about halfway down her arm, and got a good signal back in her hand. So now she has this very unusual plumbing job uh, running from her neck down into her arm as her only uh, supply of blood to her, her arm. And actually, right around Easter, all of this started happening again. She was having a few little problems. She really wanted to go to Easter celebrations with my aunt, but in the end wasn't able to make it because we sort of insisted that she come in. Brought her in, they did some studies, everything kind of looked all right. Her hand looked fine at the time, but she still was saying she was having some occasions when it was turning kind of numb. Finally, we got one good view with uh, ultrasound that showed that in one very small space, the whole thing was completely closed off again, right at the anastomosis, the joining between the vein and the brachial artery in her arm. Uh, probably something to do with a technical error in surgery or just a small problem with her with her anastomosis. Maybe as the skin was closed, it got kinked or who knows. Anyway, almost completely blocked off. So she had to have a revision operation, was back in the hospital for a few days. And now, at the tender age of 80, is running around with, uh, with a great pulse and a big pink hand and a, is a testament to the quality of vascular surgery. And I've disparaged vascular surgeons, and I have done it, you know, despite the fact that some of my favorite relatives are vascular surgeons, as, uh, as being uh, the, sort of the process of, of killing people distal to proximal, um, you know, just sort of lopping off limbs and digits as, as they get, as they lose their blood flow. But it's, uh, it's a lot more subtle than that, and uh, kudos to these guys who did an amazing job with my grandmother um, in getting her uh, the right operation quickly. Here's a story for next time. A mother brings her child in to the doctor's office and says, oh, that's the weirdest thing, doc, this kid of mine. He's two. Um, we've been playing, and every time, uh, every time I, he looks up in the light, I notice that one of his pupils is really reflective. It looks like a cat's eye. So, what do you do about that? It's an interesting story. I bring it up um, because a, I saw a patient like this once, and and b, my cat actually had this, uh, this look where he looked up into the ceiling, and, and one of his eyes was reflective, and one of them wasn't. And, Anyway, cats don't get the problem that this kid has, but uh, but it got me thinking about it. All right, well, episode 27, Whither and Whence. Love to get your emails at dashingmd at gmail.com. Always makes this easier to uh, to do if I'm, I'm responding to a question or feel like it's part of a, 
conversation. It's always a little harder to sort of come up with something on my own and just hope you guys are interested. So drop me a line if you get an opportunity. Or uh, feel free to post comments on the blog. That's dashingmd.blogspot.com. Big shout out to uh, Dr. Anon. That's not Dr. Anonymous, our podcasting and, and blogging buddy. Um, but Dr. Anon, um, a, a new intern who has uh, recently sent me an email, uh, just as a sort of shout out for uh, the blog, uh, saying that he'd been listening for a long time and liked it. And, and shout out right back to Dr. Anon. I'm the Dashing Doctor, and uh, it's been a pleasure being with you here yet again. Hope to be back to you soon. Till then, be well. <laughs>